Welcome to the Eventualities Podcast, interesting conversations with the people behind our favourite regional festivals and events. We dive into the memorable experiences they create, the unexpected challenges they've overcome and what they've learned along the way. Peter Jones is one of Australia's leading event producers, creating and designing special events for over 30 years. Based in Melbourne, Peter has been the recipient of countless awards and recognitions throughout his career. He was appointed as a member of the Order of Australia at the Australia Day Honours for significant service to the tourism and hospitality sector in 2018. Peter has continually dedicated a great deal of time to representing and supporting the industry at many levels. He is a previous chairman of the Victoria Events Industry Council and member of the Victoria Tourism Industry Council. He was also a board member of Destination Melbourne, past president of the Melbourne chapter of the International Special Events Society and on the Tourism Australia Business Events Advisory Panel. Peter was a keynote speaker at the 2019 Regional Events Conference in Dubbo, and it's with absolute pleasure that I welcome Peter Jones AM to the Eventualities podcast. Hi, Peter. Melinda, thank you for that very kind introduction. Um, I've kind of brought back some terrific memories, actually, when I look back at some of uh, some of those things. But uh, no, it's nice to be with you here today. Well, thank you. Now, I want to, um, I guess, start by asking you a bit about your background, because you have certainly worked on some of the most amazing events um, across the country. And I want to get into that. But first, I want to find out how you got started in the industry. Can you tell me a bit, I guess, about your childhood and growing up and then what led you to get into the events industry? Um, I actually fell into it. I don't think at that stage you actually aim to do it, because back then, um, back in the last century when uh, I was studying and, uh, and went to university. Basically what happened, I finished school um, and then went to Monash and did a Bachelor of Economics with a major in marketing. But when I was in, my, in the school holidays before I did that, um, I was one of those people who said I need a job because I had a very expensive taste and my parents weren't going to fund me over the school holidays. So my father was chairman of the Moomba Festival back then. And so he said, right, if you want a job, you can go in um, and work for six weeks over the year. And it was, I can remember it, $25 a week I got paid. And I went in and on the first day they said, right, off you go. Here's an event, go away and organise it. And I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. But from there, Belinda, that was the start. So I was 17 and then I worked the next summer holidays when I was 18 and then I went went to uni. I worked when I was 19, 20, 21 over that period of time. And I think that's where it started and that's got my interest in it um, and it was through the opportunity to do it at a young age rather than waiting that, that led me probably to where I am today. Wow, I didn't know that story. So had your was your dad just um, involved with Moomba just out of interest or what got him involved with that? Um, he was a Melbourne City councillor part-time. He had his own business and then he ended up there and um, the people that I met at Moomba, two of them I still see to this very day, um, and it was that opportunity and that exposure. Um, I've always believed that probably deep down I'm, I'm a born organiser, um, bit of a control freak, but I won't admit it publicly, so don't go and tell anyone. And so I think people become attracted to businesses and industries that reflect their personality, that reflect their capability and reflect their interest. Um, I wasn't going to be a rocket scientist, I wasn't going to be a doctor and I wasn't going to be a nuclear physicist. So I kind of found my way and then the other jobs afterwards led to that to, to basically when the company started over 30 years ago. And so did you um, go, yeah, I guess what age were you when you started your company and did you get some ex- other experience behind you before you did that? I certainly did. I went and did, I finished my degree. Then I went and worked um, uh, for a company called Life Beat It for those that are old enough to remember the campaign and ran their promotions. And then basically I got a job in advertising and I worked for Clemingers in Melbourne and then J. Walter Thompson. But I was always in a promotional capacity running their events for clients um, then I ended up with a conference organising company um, for three years and then they got bought out by an American company and I still remember the day. Um, I got called into the office and they said, right, we've been bought out, you're retrenched um, because we don't need you anymore. So I walked out of the office that day and with no job 
uh, nowhere to go. Um, I didn't even tell my parents um, that I'd lost my job. And then a lot of people in the industry said, you should go and run your own business. We'll support you. Um, go out there and do it. So that's why I did it because I didn't want to have to go and apply for another job. Um, and I started back as a one-man band and my main focus back then was organising theme parties. Events are not what we were doing today. I was the party man. Okay. And were you doing that at, for, you know, at people's houses or corporate parties? What type of parties were you doing? Belinda, I would go anywhere to, to try and earn some money, but it ended up mostly being uh, some private stuff that I knew through family connections to be able to do. Then it was corporate and then it kind of grew from there. But that's where it started and I look back at it now and what I was doing then is totally different from the events industry today. I mean, it's just it's chalk and cheese, but it was a great learning. Um, uh, it was it was one of those things where I was either going to sink or swim. And I think I look back at it now and the best thing that ever happened to me was me getting retrenched um, because I don't know where I would have been if I, if I hadn't have. Would I have found my way? I'm not sure. But I'm always a, I'm a glass half full person. And to this day, I actually thank the person that did it. I still see him. Um, and we're all, we're all good friends and to do it from there. So I, I kind of look back at it and say that was a good thing to happen. Oh, absolutely. You're thriving. So tell me about those early days. Was it difficult? Like, were you, I guess, going from one event to the other thinking, where, yeah, where's my next event coming from? Or did it grow quite quickly, organically? How did that happen? Um, I had um, no idea basically what I was doing. If anyone was going to say, show, show me your marketing plan uh, or your sales plan, there wasn't one. Um it was basically the, the best thing I ever did was I rented an office in the Melbourne Convention Bureau um, and I got to know them and they would say, oh, listen, someone's got a conference um, and they're looking for someone to run a dinner and someone's got this. So that's what got me started. Um, I went around to all the hotels and said, I'm available if you need someone to come in and do it. So some of the events I were doing were quite bizarre. I still remember a mitzvah I did where I only built the centrepieces um, and they exploded at the end of the night, the client wanted it. So I'm kind of going, wow, the things you've got to do and you're getting paid. Um, I was earning enough money just to be able to pay it from there. So you find your way, you get known, one thing leads to another that leads to another that leads to another. Um, that's the story of kind of how it happened. But it was a bit bizarre because I would lock up the office for sometimes for three weeks and go away because I didn't have a, a staff member. I put it to an answering machine uh, to do that. So I laugh at it now, but I can tell you it was, was hard going then. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess Peter Jones special events have grown and grown and grown. Can you talk to us um, and we'll talk pre-COVID. So when you, I guess, were at your height, can you tell me about how many you had in your team and the type of events and clients you you had and were working on? Well, the biggest we ever got to was eight staff. Uh, I didn't want to be any bigger. I could have Belinda gone and become 15 to 20 staff, but that would having meant going and getting every single event. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to fill a, a, a niche market and work with the clients that you've got from there. So we were doing uh, pre-COVID about 40 events a year. Uh, that's, that may be a lot. For others, it's it's not a lot for other ones from there, but I was positioning myself at probably the top end of town. I was really interested in only certain types of events, and that's what worked from there. So we would work on in a typical year, AFL would be one of our biggest clients, and we would do the grand final day entertainment. I am the man that put Meatloaf on the stage in 2010. Um, I do want to come so back and talk about that too. <laughs> I'll tell you the real story about, about yeah. the whole Meatloaf. Yes. Um, the grand final parade, you know, then we go to the Melbourne Cup, we would work with the Grand Prix. Um, we've worked with the Australian Olympic Committee since 2000 on a number of their big events from there. So our world was corporate. We never went after private. Uh, I'm not a PCO. I don't organise conferences, don't organise exhibitions. Um, I deliberately went for a, a market, particularly based in Melbourne, that had a gap that I saw then. Um, now it's filled with, you know, there's 25 companies actually in that market now. But that's how it grew. And I always said, if you do a good job, people will come back to you. 
And so the AFL is an example. We've done the parade takeout the last two years when it hasn't happened. We did it for 23 years in a row. And we did the grand final for the last 17 years, take out the last two years because we couldn't do it. But that that business that you can repeat, that you can work with and do really well, I found was a better model than trying to be everything to everybody. I couldn't agree more. And we've got to remember too, you you started those relationships with those clients pre-social media. So really it is all about building those relationships and um, really connecting with those clients because that was the best way to do it back then, wasn't it? You didn't have social media um, behind you. So you had to really put your money where your mouth was. Yeah, you had to. There was, there was no choice. It was, it was loyalty and I, something that I learned as a young person in business, I respected those that were loyal to me, those clients that said, Peter, you do a good job. We'll get you back. We'll get you back. That then flowed through to the suppliers we work with and the people that we work with from there. So I'm still working with people we work with 20, 25 years ago um, to be able to do that. So I found that so important. Um, I found that people would do business with you for, for three main reasons. One, you were capable of doing the job. Two, that you charged a fair price. And three, you were a nice person. Um, and how many people of us, how many times, sorry, do we do business with someone we don't like a second time? Zero. So you can be the greatest event organiser in the world, but you can be an absolute pain in the ass and clients won't necessarily come back. So I learned that. And I learned that it's easier to keep a client than go and find a new one. So the record that we have of working on events over multiple years, um, I think was testimony to the fact of the attitude that I took. And that also went through to my staff and the way we basically treated people. I mean, at the end of the day, if you can't have fun and enjoy it and have a laugh, then you might as well go and get a real job. (laughs) Exactly. It's one of the bonuses of our industry, isn't it? (laughs) Fun, fun is, you know, it's, it's why we do it. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's one of those things. People say to me, well, you know, I want to get into events because you lead a glamorous life and you hang out with AFL footballers and Grand Prix drivers. Uh, far from the truth. Um, that's it's a bit of a, a, definitely a myth. But it's the old saying, what you put in is what you're going to get out. Um, and if you wanted a nine to five job, fine, go and work at a bank. Um, if you wanted to be able to create some amazing experiences for people and do those sorts of things, then the event industry has certainly been able to deliver that. Absolutely. Now, that is a great segue onto my next question for you. So you um, very kindly at the events conference in Dubbo spoke about, you know, creating memorable moments, oh, sorry, creating memorable experiences and unexpected moments. And it would be great if you can talk to that a bit and maybe give some examples of some of the amazing things um, that you and the team have done over the years. Yeah, I'm a great believer that that anyone can be an event organiser if you want to. And that I think if you ask for a proposal from most of them, they would all look pretty similar. So I've always believed in going, thinking literally outside the square and going, okay, what can I do that is going to exceed expectations? And that's driven me not to just put the same old stuff up time after and time after again from there. So it's when you look for different venues, when you look for different entertainers, when you even do something as simple as walk them in the back door into a ballroom rather than going through the front door or reversing the order of dinner where you serve dessert first, then main, then entree, or then, or you find a venue that is so unique that no one's ever done it before and they say you can't be done, then you go and try to find a way to do it. I think it's the way you look at those things and the way you approach it and you're trying to add value to your client when they go, wow, that was different. Because when you're working with clients, as you know too well, you're doing sometimes the same event year after year after year. How do you give a point of difference? How do you add value more so that they go, wow, you've exceeded our expectations. You've done it differently to be able to do it. So that's that's the one of the biggest things I've learned is uh, to look at things from a different perspective and how you can make it better. And that's why I drive everybody mad, particularly my wife and family, when, you know, you think like you go to shows, you go to the theatre, you go to other things, you think, 
wow, what a great idea. I could use that. What about an idea? And my wife will look at me going, can't you just enjoy it for what it is? And I go, yeah, I am, but there's also a way in here to do something. So I think that type of mind has stood me well where if you just want, right, we just want this, this and this, I'll say that's fine, but here's what you can also do to be able to do it. And I think that's really important in the way you look at creating events. Yeah, absolutely. I love those examples too. Um, what have been, and again, we'll talk pre-COVID, what ha- had been some of the biggest challenges that that you had faced, I guess, as a business owner and working in the events industry? It's such a dynamic industry that has continued to evolve. And I think that's probably the most important thing. And it has to. No industry can sit static for 25, 30 years what we were doing 25, 30 years ago is totally different from, from what we're doing now. So the biggest changes that have happened have been clients' expectations and, they, and the experience that they want to, to get from there. So um, the first question we ask now is not where do you want to go or how much you want to spend. We ask what is the experience you want? What do you want your guests to walk out with at the end of the night or the day or whatever it's going to be from there because they all want different things. Some of them just say, listen, Peter, we just want to party, get the speeches over and done with and get the band on. Others will say, no, we want to recognise the staff and we want to make sure everyone's face is up on the screen or whatever it may be from there. So that's been the biggest thing and that's been driven by the world of social media and people's expectations that ha- that's changed. So that's the biggest thing. People now want to go to an event for an experience of one kind or another. Hopefully it's a good one. Um, so that's been the biggest driver. The other driver that I've noticed over the years has been, has been now is, is risk. Um, and it sounds so boring and you go, oh, my God, we've got to do this. What we were doing even 10 years ago now, we, we're not doing. I mean, I can't do an event. You can't do an event now without a risk plan, without it being ticked off, without having it looked at from a safety perspective. Um, so I've noticed that. I mean, the best thing that ever happened, it was a horrible accident that happened in Crown in Melbourne probably 15 years ago when a light fell out of the roof in the Palladium ballroom and landed in the middle of a table. Um, and it changed everything down here. It was the catalyst. Thank God no one was hurt. But what it meant was now Crown all of a sudden went, hang on a moment, the, you can't come in here unless this is signed off and signed off and the and it went right through the industry. Um, and it was, the as I said, the best thing to happen because it got rid of the cowboys. It got rid of the people that were taking shortcuts and not following the rules. And now the number one priority that we have for any event, it's got to be safe. And you've got to tick the boxes and make sure everybody knows, not just you're just doing it for the sake of it, that all your suppliers know where are your swims now. I mean, you, know, you can't do an event without having all the insurance, without having those plans in place. So that's been the biggest change with experiential marketing and plans for it in the industry over that time. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, good point. And I guess we're going to see even more of that now moving forward. Um, so I guess we, we'll get on to that. Let's talk about the last two years. So before we started, we were having a quick chat and um, you were telling me, you know, the exact moment um, when things kicked off in the world of COVID for you last year. So do you do you want to retell that story? Um, it is, I will take this to my grave that the moment. So it was it was Friday the 13th of March. Um, last year, and I remember it well because I was at a breakfast. We were running at the Grand Prix on the Friday morning, um, and the big question was: Is the Grand Prix going to be called on? It was uh, sorry, off? Is it going to be on to do it? So we were at the breakfast trackside at eight fifteen. They came in and said the Grand Prix is is on. Sorry, is off. No, hang on, like off oh, is 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 on, but no fans. Going to try to remember it here. And then at eight forty-five, it was off, full stop. So in half an hour, it changed. We were all then taken out of the carousel, put in a bus, driven out of the track. We're going through the main gate, and there are all the catering staff arriving who had no idea. There are all the fans out the front who had no idea. Got back to the office, explained what had happened. 
at quarter to one that day, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, got up and said all events over 500 are banned. And I would say within 24 hours, we worked out we lost 13 events. The, it just went bang so quickly because of the uncertainty. And since then, it's had its ups and downs, but it has virtually wiped out parts of the industry for the last 18 months and it's been different in each state. I know depending where you live and what section you're in. Um, and I will never forget that moment and I'll never forget the next month um, and trying to work out what do you do with your staff and all those sorts of things that, that came from it because none of us had experienced this before. We didn't know what to do. But then it got worse, particularly in a Melbourne perspective, um, to the point where we would do we at that last event was in in March. We did another one in November, and there was nothing in between. So just everything just shut down. Wow. So of those thirteen events, were they actually cancelled? I guess because back in March last year, there was so much uncertainty. We had no idea what was happening. Um, so were they actually cancelled or were they postponed? Most of them were postponed. Um, I've had one event now that has been postponed four times. It hasn't happened yet. It will be two years between the first postponement and the time they will do it. And it's a 150th birthday celebration and there will be 152 when they do it. And they're still calling it the 150th. <laughs> there are so many stories of some were actually cancelled um, clients decided we're not going to do, we're not going to take the risk. Thank God the majority postponed, postponed. And I'm sure there are plenty of other examples of events that have been postponed more than four times. Um, they're the ones that could be postponed. A lot of these events, such as the AFL Grand Final in Melbourne, Melbourne Cup last year, um, just had to be cancelled because there, you just, there's no way you could do anything. The ripple effect of that, Belinda, is huge. So we would then, we worked out, if we were doing, say, a gala dinner, we would have a minimum of 10 different suppliers on, a, on, an, on an event like that. They then relied on us, the event company, get the business. And if our business stops, their business has stopped. And it was going right through the industry. Um, and a lot of people say to me, oh, you know, it, it was, was it really that bad? The problem what we've got as an industry is that a restaurant can open tomorrow night. Some of the events we're talking about take months and months of planning, so we can't come back overnight. And I think it's made people realise, firstly, the, the nature of the events industry, but also the other thing is how important the events industry is to, and I'm talking from a Melbourne perspective here in particular, when you lose the AFL Grand Final, the Melbourne Cup, the Grand Prix, the Food and Wine, the Fashion Festival in one year, People then go, oh, you know what? These events are really good. When Harry Potter disappears and theatre um, alone, I believe some good will come out of this. Um, Sydney's trying to pinch the Grand Prix now um, from Melbourne. That will never happen because the government realise and the industry the value of events and not just those events, including business events, um, to be able to do it. Even more so, they will come back next year even stronger than they have ever been. Absolutely. Yeah, there's going to be such, well, there already is a thirst and an appetite, isn't there, from the public. They do realise, as you said, how much they've missed out on and the value these events play in our society. Um, now, you touched on those suppliers. I'd love to talk a bit more about those suppliers because obviously, um, as an industry, we you rely on them so heavily and yes we can organize the event but we need the suppliers um you know to be there to help deliver it so what are you finding with suppliers at the moment how are they faring and i guess uh, the big one is staffing how's that looking yeah the suppliers um a lot of the suppliers we work with have particularly done it tough as many have because most of them um the majority of the ones in the industry would employ less than five people um, unless you're a big AV company that you can go and do it. But the stage managers, the performers, um, the stylists, um, those sort of people, the risk people, um, they're small businesses and they're the ones who have really struggled. And I know the JobKeeper um, and Business Grants has kept them going from there. What's also happened is unfortunately a lot of them have left the industry. 
they've just had no choice but to go elsewhere. So the industry is faced with a, a dilemma now, and you keep hearing about this in every industry. I can't find enough staff. Where are we going to get these staff? And it's true from an events industry perspective, whereby we're going to have to look at how many events that Peter Jones Special Events can physically do coming back next year that we can have the resources to do it. So there's not much point saying, yeah, we'll do that and that and that and that. I don't have enough staff. I'm now looking for a new business model with my staff, how to make it work. But it's not just them. It's the AV companies. It's the the performers. It's the stage managers. Are they still there? And can you deliver an event? Think you need to look at your own business. Okay, how busy? And I don't think enough people looking at that, they think, oh, no, it'll be fine. I'll come back and I'll find this. I'm having discussions now with suppliers to say, are you in a position to make sure that you can deliver me these particular products and services when it does come back and that you haven't lost everybody to the point where um, I'm going to get the second-rate staff um, to do it? And that's a big issue that the industry needs to address now. Yeah, absolutely. Now, look, you've been... um a really strong advocate, I think, for the industry over the last 18 months um, in particular. As I said at the top of the, the show, you, you've always been really heavily involved, but I think you've been a really strong advocate. Um, I'd love to get your take, I guess, on what you've been um, hearing, what you've been seeing and experiencing with the industry, what you think has to happen, what we may need more of. Because um, as you said, we are a very, very long way um, from getting through this. It, it, it's not as simple as just opening the doors and um, business resumes. It's a really long, hard pro, you know, process for us. So I'd love to hear a bit more about that. Yeah, it's been um, what I've learned over the last 18 months, um, at the end of it, I'm going to write down and, and do a big a big story on it, actually, because I've learnt more, I think, in 18 months than I have in 30 years um, and doing it from there. Uh, the key takes is that each state has approached this differently. So from a national perspective, a lot of that time has been wasted and people trying to fight for events on every state from there. Um, what's happened is the industry, we found out, is fragmented. Okay, there, people say to me in Melbourne, Peter, why isn't there one body that can go and talk to the government because there's this organisation and this one and this one? I could name seven in Victoria that were all lobbying on the government's front door and the government would speak to us when we were a part of a group and then they'd say, Peter, I need, need to speak to one. And I said, you can't have because, for example, theatre down here had one voice the theatre from there. Um, then, so the government's going, and tourism had one voice. The events industry had multiple voices, and it was I was confused. So what happened was you got, you know, people that decided they wanted to go and save the world. That's fine. But what it did was fragment and it confused government. So is there a simple solution for this? The answer is no, because what the exhibition industry needs is different from the public events, is different from the festival, is different from business events, um, <coughs> excuse me, and all those sorts of things. So that was it. So we've tried to find a way to get through to government to make them recognise the value of the events industry and, when, and you know, include business events, um, cultural events, not just, you know, a Grand Prix or, a, or an AFL Grand Final and to advocate for that support to continue and why it's taken so long. Um, so out of it, it's just been, it's been a, a slog um, because we haven't had that, that particular one voice. But I give the, I'm talking Victoria, I give the government credit down here. They, they weren't listening at the start, but they've got a hell of a lot better to the point where they do recognize the value and we're very lucky to have a minister down here um who who loves events who loves tourism and had really gone in to fight for us whilst it's not perfect um it's been as good as it could have been um not every business has been able to be saved that's impossible but the industry here will bounce back very quickly as long as now that we have certainty but um i also put myself in the in the in the government shoes and go Okay, 
what else could you have done? And the thing that we've found is that whilst you're talking to the government, um, the department that looks after events and sport and tourism, et cetera, that gets overridden by the health department. And that's the one thing we've learned. The health department down here had carte blanche and no matter what was going to happen, was going to happen. They were going to shut down the Grand Prix and the footy and all those things. So that's being a, a, a big lesson learned. Um, the other thing is communication is that I think the industry didn't do enough to go out there and try and say this is what we are doing as different organisations they were doing from there. So I think whereas tourism particularly and other ones that had a little bit more clout were on the front page every day literally saying, you know, if you don't do this, this is what's going to happen. So, again, not perfect but we've weathered it pretty well and I think the majority will come out okay on the other end. Yeah, absolutely. Um, some great insights there. Thank you. So how are things looking for Peter Jones special events now that we are slowly opening up um, in most of the country anyway and borders look to be, you know, coming down? What is on the horizon for you? Well, there are no events in Western Australia, that's for sure. Um, well, none that we can go to. <laughs> none that we can go to uh, to do it. So what's happened? I said um, two weeks ago we were going to – our next event was going to be – the first week of Feb. Now I think we've got a minimum of four events before Christmas and possibly a fifth. Um, so I am extremely confident that the industry will, once it gets to this 90% vaccination rate, we can get back to one per two square metres, which then makes events viable for the majority of them, that it will come back. And clients are now going, okay, we're going to there, we're not quite there yet but we are in the new year to be able to come back and do it from there. So I believe they will come back. We will still live with QR coding and double VAC certificates and all of that. That's just a fact of life. The, the area that is going to be, that's going to take the longest to come back are public events where you can't go and contract trace. So, for example, New Year's Eve in Melbourne now can't happen. So I know that the city of Melbourne have to go and build these zones. They have to fence off four or five areas and you have to be able to go into that fenced off area, show your QR code to be able to get in. That's the problem because not everyone can afford to do that and that's got ramifications for large public events and festivals and that will continue for a while. I mean, for example, we still couldn't do the AFL parade even in February and March next year um, when you get 100,000 people in the streets to do it. So that's an area. New South Wales will come back before. I think they're going to relax it a little bit earlier. Um, we down here have got to follow that. But I worry for those type of events, um, even school fates and those sorts of things and events you talk of, unless you can have that in place, that's not going to happen for a while. But the business events will come back. Um, the corporate events will. Um, festivals will come back when you can go in and it's like a, a concert type situation. They will come back. I mean, Harry Potter, Moulin Rouge all start the end of this week in Melbourne. Um, it'll start back at 75%. The tennis will be at 100% in January. The Grand Prix will be 100% in April. All those things will happen and it will bounce back very quickly. But this issue we talked about, staffing, infrastructure, all those things have got to be taken into consideration. Oh, absolutely. Yes, definitely. And it's great to hear that, um, yeah, you have also got some, you know, events on the horizon. So that's good news. I quickly want to touch on, go back to the meatloaf story, because I'd love for you to tell that if, you, if you're able to. <laughs> I am. It's, it's, um, it's probably the only person that was really happy with that was Angry Anderson, because he was always judged as the worst performer <laughs> at the 1991 grand final. For those that are old enough to remember, Bound for Glory on the Batmobile at VFL Park. Um, so what happens on, on AFL Grand Final Day is that um, whilst I put Meatleaf on the stage, I'm not the final decision maker. So that's my out, Belinda, for this. I'm just going to be up front and I'm going to throw a couple of other people under the bus, um, <coughs> excuse me, for this. So what happens literally is that um, Frontier Mushroom um, are responsible for the booking of the act. So um, we are in a meeting Andrew Demetrio was head of the AFL then. So there's Michael Gudinski, the late Michael, um, Andrew, myself, and the event manager of the AFL. And Michael goes, uh, who do you want? You can either have Brian Adams or you can have Meatloaf 
And Andrew Demetrio goes, I'll have meatloaf, and then gets on his computer and says, these are the songs I want him to sing. And we've all gone, you know what? I'd love to meet Loaf back in the 80s. I'm just showing my age here. So um, I won't go into it, but my now wife, then girlfriend, I took her to a Meat Loaf concert at the Palais Theatre in Melbourne, and I reckon that was the night that she actually said, you're not a bad bloke, I might actually go out with you again. So I have a lot to thank Meat Loaf for. Um, so what happened in the end was the fact that Meat Loaf came out the the issue is no one had seen 10 years. He's come out. Everything's good from there. We're at rehearsal on the Thursday. And, and then um, Craig Willis has gone, oh, gotcha. I went, oh, I'm sure he's just going through it, um, not trying. Anyway, he was trying and he was trying. Anyway, he got up on the Saturday um, and the rest is history. On a scale of one to ten, it was about a minus five. Even I've got to admit um, he – he was a strange man because in his dressing room, it all had to be blacked out, and he was into voodoo dolls. And we would think he was sniffing all sorts of things, whatever they were beforehand. Anyway, it went on. It was a, it was a, a, it was a train wreck is the only way to describe it. Um, and lives in folklore. However, you know, we also were the group um, that put the, the killers on the stage and a few other acts to go in from there. So. Uh, when people realised how much Meatloaf got paid for that event, and as you know, international artists get paid the moment they step on the stage, not afterwards. You don't send the invoice in and say, oh, you've got 30 days to pay my bill. Um, it was quite quite a story. So um, we've lived through it. Um, we have survived at the other end, but I can tell you it was a horrible experience, even for me as a big Meatloaf fan. Oh, gosh, what did your wife think? She would have been disappointed. She was too, because when I told her I got when I got home from the meeting, this is months in advance. I said it's going to be meatloaf, and I, I'm going to make sure he does bad out of hell, and two out of three ain't bad, and all this sort of stuff from there. She goes, "You're just reliving your childhood." I said, "Yes, because I'm a I'm a product of the '80s." Um, and, you know, it was had it been meatloaf, it would have been Spandau Ballet or Rick Astley up there, or maybe even Duran Duran. Um, I keep pushing for Leo Sayer every year with the AFL, and they do get my bad sense of humour now. Um, no offence to Leo, but that's a little bit old. Um, but it's just proven. And then everyone said, why do we have international acts? And, and it was proven that the year before because we had um, Lionel Richie. Um, and Lionel Richie we got in one week because of the draw in the grand final. Um, and because he was so successful, they've gone, oh, let's go back internationals. Um, but the Aussies did well this year because they were only Perth-based acts and I think they did a really good job. And, Belinda, you're on a hiding to nothing because you're trying to appeal to my daughter who goes, who's this, who's this, right through to my father who goes, bring back Perry Como and Frank Sinatra. Um, so I don't know what you do there, um, but it's like the rugby have the same issue. No matter if you, what it is, you'll never appeal and please everybody. That's the thing I've learned. So you've just got to do the best job you can. Absolutely. Yes, you do, Peter. Um before we get to our final wrap-up questions, do you has there been an event that you've worked on that has really stood out? Now, it may be the meatloaf for all the wrong reasons, but have you worked on one that's just been amazing in all forms, you know, from everything, from the organisation and delivery went smoothly, um, you know, the, the clients were obviously wowed. Has there been something that's really, really stood out throughout your career? Um, it's a really interesting question because you look back over over the years at the events that I suppose probably mean something a little bit more rather than that and and two that probably three that stand out if I look at them and they're all ones that that I had an emotive an emotional connection to so the first one was the centenary of federation which was back in in 2001 it was a hundred years since the celebration of the first parliament of Australia and, you know, you're standing backstage next to Gough Whitlam, Bob Hawke, Paul Keating, John Howard, um, uh, backstage saying, all right, stand by, I'm about to put you on stage to be able to do it. What was so significant is that event will not happen for another 100 years. So we're none of us are going to be around to do the next one. And that was, to me, just one of those moments where you go, wow, I'm involved in something that is part of Australia's history. 
The second one was um, when Neil Danaher rang up and said, you need to come to a meeting. Uh, and five of us turned up at a meeting at the MCG, which is now six years ago. And he goes, I'm going to be dead in two years. I need to create an event that can raise money for MND. You need to go away and come up with an idea. We need to do something. And I will never forget that meeting. Um, for those that remember the ice bucket challenge, you know, when you got dunked in the machine there, that's what the MND thing. And we remember coming back, um, Rod Curtis and I, were, who's head of an ad agency, and we came back and said, oh, Neil, we've got this great idea. We're going to just build this dunking machine in the middle of the MCG and you sit on and put slippers in. And I still remember Neil saying, Peter, you're not thinking big enough. I want bigger. You need to go away. And I said, well, Neil, the only other way you can do this is if you stick a frigging swimming pool in the middle of the MCG and you jump in it. He said, that's what I want. Go away and make it happen. Wow. And that's how the freeze at the G started. And then um, Rod Curtis came up with the name. I didn't come up with the name of freeze. We went and rang um, with Pat Cunningham and a lot of the MND team that were putting this together. None of us got paid. It was just purely this way of doing it. Went and rang this guy and said, will you donate a swimming pool? Yeah, I'll do it. Will you donate a slide? Everything was done for the first year for nothing and it's been done ever since then. And I will still never forget the day of the day before on that slide with Neil Danaher there looking at me going, this is fantastic. Next year, I want you to make them jump off the top of the MCG into the swimming pool. Um, and I said, Neil, that's not going to happen. But it's when you meet truly inspirational people, you get a chance to work with them, you get a chance to learn from them. Um, to this day, it's still been one of the most amazing events. And the final one was the first field of women, um, which was for Breast Cancer Network, which was basically... 13,000 women mostly standing on the MCG in the shape of the pink lady. That meant a lot to me because my mother was going through that same issue at that time. And I still remember standing out there um, in the, before a football match forming this, I've never, there was not one dry eye. Everyone, when we turned the lights out and we played the music, again, emotions run through your body. And you're able to do that. So they're the events that I still sit back now and go, I was so proud to be involved with those events. Not only because they were great events and worked for what they were and it wasn't because of us. It's a legacy they leave and you really feel, Belinda, that you can contribute and you kind of walk away going, you know what, I actually feel good about myself, my company, the things that you're able to do that, will the people will go yep i've that was a great experience to be able to be part of no they're beautiful they're absolutely beautiful and i do need to say just um you mentioning neil danaher i know you're a mad melbourne football club fan so it must have been a little bit bittersweet this year to see them win on the other side of the country but i'm sure it was you know also a very happy occasion for you yeah, let's just say a, a, a bittersweet is a great way to describe it. We were working on the grand final in Melbourne till three weeks out and we knew at the MCG, so we knew that it was going to go. Um, little did I know Melbourne was going to get there. I didn't think about going over with uh, and, and sneaking my way in because I'd still be in jail, <laughs> uh, obviously, with those two. Uh, it is bittersweet because um, one of my great wishes in life is I'm very fortunate to be able to stand on the MCG on grand final day, but I've never done it working with Melbourne there. And I've always dreamed of standing out there and then the teams run out and Max Gorn, the Melbourne captain for those who know, walks past me and goes, Peter, which way, which end should I kick to first? I've dreamt about this. Um, oh. And unfortunately, Belinda, it didn't happen. But what I'm hoping is that Melbourne get there again next year and I can be out there again to do it. Um, one good thing is we're actually helping with Melbourne's event. They've got a, a welcome home, which we're running at the MCG on December the 5th, allowing for enough people to come. Um, so there'll be all the diehards there to do it. Um, so I had a cry that night when they, when they did win. Um, whilst I couldn't be there, it's still better winning 
than not being there. So, but I can tell you, it was, um, I hope Melbourne do the right thing by everyone. They get there again next year. Absolutely. He's hoping for a great 2022. Well, thank you so much for sharing um, all your amazing experiences and knowledge with us, Peter. It's been delightful to have you as a guest today. I finish the podcast with a few quick questions if you're ready for those. Absolutely. Okay. So what was the last event you went to? Maybe a while ago. <laughs> the last event, I, oh, it's, um, I'm actually, I can't remember. But I am going to one this Wednesday morning. Uh, the Prime Minister is speaking at a business breakfast um, in Melbourne and I will have to put a suit on, I think, for the first time since May this year. Um, the last I went, I went to would have been, honestly, I, I would have to go back and look at my diary. It's been that long. But I am looking forward to getting out of bed early on Wednesday morning and going. There's 400 people going and... Um, it sounds weird, I know, I missed wearing a suit. Yep, I think everyone's in the same the same boat. I think we're looking forward to the festive season and being able to dress up and get out of our loungewear. Um, okay, what has been the your favourite event that you've ever been to? doesn't have to be one you've organised, it can be anything. Oh, boy, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, I, I think for me, I've been to um, Bar Tokyo this year, been to the last five Olympic Games. And for me, being able to go to an opening ceremony and see those things still is the most amazing. Um, when you see the spectacle, you do it from there. I've been fortunate enough also to go to one event that I thought would be even grander than that was a, a bit of a letdown, and that was Super Bowl. Oh, that's one of my questions. Okay. Why? Why was it a letdown? The hype around this Super Bowl is was amazing. And you went there and... And, you know, the halftime entertainment was Bruno Mars and Beyonce and Coldplay that year. Yeah, Chris that I Martin. Went. Yeah. Chris Martin. And I, that was the year I went. And you go and it's just, it was a bit anticlimactic, I must admit. I don't know why. Um, but would I rush back to an Olympics? Yes. Would I rush back to a Super Bowl? No. Um, so that was the biggest I just think it's overhyped and people just go, oh, my God, Peter, what did you think? And I'm looking at it from an event perspective um, and it takes so long to get in and this whole thing around it and it stops for TV every second and uh, I don't know. I, I was just felt a little bit let down but um, Sydney was the most amazing Olympics but the other best thing, I went to um, Beijing and London, the, what the Chinese did in, in Beijing in 2008 was the greatest spectacle I've ever seen. Okay, there we go. We'll all go back and watch that um, opening. Which event is on your bucket list? Okay, I'm do. I'm going to it next year. Uh, as a, I'm, okay, I'm a mad golfer. Yep. Um, so I am going to the Masters. That's been delayed two years to go next year. So that is on my on my bucket list. Um, I've got to go to the cricket at, at, in at Lords. That's on my bucket list. So they're probably more personal things than from a business perspective i've got no desire to go to coachella and i don't know a couple of those you know because i'm too old to go to all those festivals um i'd have to have a seat and i'd have to have an area where i can sit down i think belinda rather than standing maybe up um go. maybe covid will play well for that peter because aren't we all going to be seated and things now in zone so maybe though you know, maybe there's a place for you there. It might work for me to be able to do it. So um, I've got my list of things that I plan to do from an event perspective to go and do those things, but I want to do things that have, that have got an interest, um, I've got a personal interest in. becomes a bit of a bucket list. I want to go, I want to do that, I want to do that. I think the last two years not being able to do those sorts of things has even driven my desire to make sure that I can go and do them from there um, to be able to do it. So that's kind of the sort of things I'm thinking about. Well, I think my husband would join you with your two bucket list items, Peter. Um, absolutely. Now, my next question is normally, would you prefer Glastonbury or the Super Bowl? Well, you've already been to the Super Bowl. Have you done Glastonbury before? No. To be honest with you, I've got no desire to go to Glastonbury. I mean, I'm still recovering from seeing Guns N' Roses at Calder Park in Melbourne 20 years ago. I swear it took me about a week to get home. I felt that far away. The thought of having to go and stand in a crowd of 
50,000, whatever it is, has zero appeal. That's very funny because last week I interviewed Peter Noble from Blues Fest and he had done Glastonbury and said he would never, he didn't return. He went one day, it was pouring rain, he had backstage passes, he didn't get backstage because he fell over in the mud and he actually didn't paint a very good picture. So I'm going to change that question now, moving forward. Um, And my last question is your favourite thing about the festivals and events industry? Um, The favourite thing is, you, there is such diversity and you meet so many wonderful people. Um, I can't begin to tell you some of the relationships that have been made over the years of people that you might only see once a year, but I kind of feel like there's a bit of a bit of a bond and a bit of a common interest in that. And because the industry is so diverse, you get to meet so many wonderful people that I'm in awe of. Um, that I think just do the most fantastic job in their particular field and I take my hat off to them um, and I think that's been one of the great things I've learned from this because still to this day I still don't know how to change the ringtone on my mobile phone and I've got to be able to go and find someone technically more savvy than me. Usually it's my teenage daughter but I have uh, loved all the AV boys saying, Peter, what do you need done on your phone? What do you need done on this? We'll help you out. So from that perspective, I know my place in life. I know where my strengths are, but Belinda, I've learnt where they're not. <laughs> and play to your strengths. And, yeah, I second that with the AV. You've probably got a lot for them to to check up on, Peter, when you see them again. It's been a long 18 months. Look, thank you again so much for your time um, and for everything you do for our industry, especially in the last 18 months or so. We wish you all the best and here's hoping that 2020 is filled with amazing festivals and events for us all to celebrate. Thank you, Belinda. It's been an absolute delight to be with you here and uh, I hope people get something out of this, but uh, he is looking up to 2022 being bigger and better than ever. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Eventualities podcast. Subscribe for future episodes and the best way you can support us is by leaving a review which helps others find the podcast.